0: Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of a series of conversations called Faith Forums. Here we discuss some of the big issues facing our world and explore how our faith compels us to take action. You'll hear from faith leaders and activists on the front lines. Welcome to the conversation.
1: All right, welcome everybody. I think for us it's a good excuse to hang out with with great friends in this movement for life and for mercy and for, uh, an end to the death penalty. And, uh, it, it's also, uh, we, we've done a couple of these faith forums is what we've been calling them, uh, red letter Christian faith forums. And I'm a big believer that our faith shouldn't just be a ticket into heaven. And uh, an excuse to ignore the world that we live in, but faith should actually fuel us to care about this world. And as Jesus said, uh, to seek the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So not just about going to heaven when we die, but bringing God's dream on earth while we live. And they—they—they—they're not just political issues, and they're not just social issues. These are spiritual issues. So we're talking. Um, about how faith informs the way that we think about the death penalty. I want to introduce you to this beautiful cloud of witnesses that we've got tonight. Uh, We've got Brandy Slaughter. uh, She's a deputy director of Death Penalty Action. You can give a little whoop whoop uh, there, Uh, Brandy. Death Penalty Action has been um, one of the co-conspirators, as we call it, of Red Letter Christians. Also kind of co-hosting tonight. Our buddy Abe Bonowitz is there behind the scenes somewhere doing, uh, probably emailing people and trying to build the movement. But Brandy's awesome. She's going to be sharing a little bit more about Death Penalty Action tonight. And, uh, Derek Jamison, one of my really great friends and heroes, just a powerhouse in the movement for alternatives to the death penalty. You want to say, hey, Derek? Good to see you, brother.
2: Hey, you
1: <laughs> <out>? <laughs> so, you're going to hear more from you know each of us tonight. And then you'll see uh, Suzanne Bossler, who's another uh, incredible friend and hero. Uh, she's been really in the forefront of uh, this movement for alternatives to the death penalty. So, you're going to hear more from her. Hey, Suzanne, thanks for. For being here tonight, and but we wanted to start with um, a song. We we've been trying to kick each one of these nights off with with a song because we believe in art, we believe in music and poetry, and uh, we we also have a coalition of artists and musicians that are friends of Red Letter Christians and a part of this movement. Um, and Stu G, who I, uh, I I love like his music, I also consider him a dear friend, but he's also been involved in the the movement for all. Alternatives to the death penalty. Uh, we've done marches and all kinds of organizing in uh, Tennessee, where I'm from and where Stu lives, um, calling for mercy. And he's done a great project called the Beatitudes Project that I got to collaborate with him on. So he's going to sing a song in the beginning here to kick us off, and then we get to hear a little encore at the end. So Stu, great to have you, buddy. Uh, bring it, bring it, my brother. Bring the fire.
3: Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you. And this is a song, in fact, from the. Beat- Attitudes Project, and uh, this is called "Oh Mercy."
4: There's a wall inside my heart. I can't get round it. It keeps the two of us apart. Can't get over it. But under my skin is where you begin, and your kindness leads me now. then you took your broken heart And fed the world with it You gave us all a brand new start I can't get over it And under my skin Forgiveness sets in And your kindness leads me now God Your spirit within is leading me home
1: how you want to start. Come on, my brother. Thank you. We're going to get uh, another one of those. So thanks for thanks for being here, too. You know, you didn't have to stay on, but you wanted to join us to hear this whole conversation. And and so thank thank you, Stu. A lot of us, you know, we haven't thought a lot about the death penalty. It's one of those issues that um, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, it's an issue that we can choose not to think about. Um, And it's an issue that I find the more people dig and they do think about it, the more troubled they are by it. Right. And that's what happened for me. I I grew up first of all, in the Bible belt. I grew up in the church and I grew up learning that the Bible uh, was uh, justified, the death penalty. And and so I spent as much of my life for the death penalty as I've been against it. And it's it's first of all, people like the folks that you're going to hear tonight that that have changed many, many folks' hearts on this, because until it becomes personal, until the issue has names and faces, then it, it's something that we can just debate and throw Bible verses around on, right? But I, I want to say that um, when, I, when I grew up, I talked about being pro-life, but I only thought of that in terms of one issue of of abortion. And I didn't think about what it means to be pro-life on so many other issues, on guns, on the death penalty, on uh, racial justice. And one of the things that you began to see is that when we think about the death penalty, it is connected to to so much of this other history that we have, right? Like I I was just home, Stu, you you saw this. I was in Tennessee this week and literally this week, uh, Tennessee voted to remove a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. Right? I mean, this is a debate. It's still the statue's still there. It's now being removed. But what we have to recognize is that, you know, a part of what's happening in our country is this racial reckoning, right, with some of that past. And when it comes to the death penalty, you can't talk about the death penalty separate from our history of racism and slavery. The the states that have held on to the death penalty the longest are the same state that held on to slavery, the longest. Um, where executions are happening today is exactly where lynching were happening a hundred years ago. And so you kind of see this uh, evolution as, as we, we think about uh, how slavery didn't really end, but it evolved into mass incarceration. And we also see that this kind of uh, uh, obsession with racial terror, uh, went from lynching to modern day executions. And um, as that was happening in like the 1950s, African-Americans were about 10% of our population, but they were 75% of our executions in this country. And now you kind of fast forward to where we're at now and African-Americans are about 13% of the population, but they're almost half of death row. And African-Americans make up over a third of our executions in this country. So we kind of hold out this idea that we have the death penalty for the worst of the worst, but in reality, we're not killing the worst of the worst. We are killing the poorest of the poor and disproportionately people of color. Uh, as we look at what actually determines who gets executed, it is not the atrocity of the crime, but it is the resources of the defendant. It's the race of the victim. It's so many other factors that go into this. So, so you know, even for folks that believe in the death penalty in principle, uh, many folks are opposed to it because they, they see the racial uh, bias that we have when, when, we, when we look at the death penalty. So, and, you know, as you look at things like uh, the cost, right? There's a lot of folks that are, are realizing that it costs more to execute someone than to keep someone in prison for life. Uh, when it comes to things like uh, deterring crime, uh, police chiefs all over this country have made a list of things that deter crime and the death penalty doesn't even make that list. Like when someone's doing a violent crime, they're not thinking of the consequences, right? And so, so you start to say, well, why do we still have the death penalty? You know, most of the world has abolished the death penalty. There's only a handful of countries that are actively executing people every year. How do we still have it? And this is what haunted me as I really dove into this um, We have the death penalty largely because Christians have defended it. And the Bible belt in America is the death belt. 85% of executions in America happen in the Bible belt where Christians are most concentrated. And so here we are, you know, Stu just sang us a song about mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And yet, the death penalty has survived not in spite of Christians, but because of us. Where Christians are most concentrated is also where the death penalty has survived. And that is why we need this conversation, right? Because a lot of times we use verses to kind of uh, interpret the bible so that it justifies the death penalty and rather than looking at Jesus and th- i wanted to have this this month because we're you know we're building up to easter where we remember that at the heart of our faith is an executed and risen savior right so what does that mean for us and i you know i think one of the one of the most well-known bible verses in the world is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right. It was this kind of ancient vision, this this kind of framework for justice that said you can do the same harm that was done to you. So if someone pokes your eye out, you can poke their eye out. And it was you know, we've kind of used it as a license for revenge. But the scholars say it was exactly the opposite. An eye for an eye was to limit the, the, the retaliation that you could do. So you couldn't, if someone hurt you, you couldn't hurt them more than they hurt you. It put a limit on that, right? And yet today, like we don't think, you know, if, if, if Stu, if you like knock my eye, if you gouge my eye out, we wouldn't think that the best we could do is to take your eye out, right? Like we don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. But somehow when it comes to killing, we still hold out this logic that we can kill to show that killing is wrong. And all that we do is mirror the very evil that we're really trying to rid the world of. And and so when you look at Jesus, what's so beautiful is he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this. And he goes on to say that there's a better way, that you might even have the legal right to take someone's eye out if they take yours out. But you can do better than mirroring that. We don't have to, uh, to return evil for evil. We can return evil with good. So that's the Jesus who interrupted an execution, right? When a woman was brought before the town, caught in adultery, Incidentally, that was a capital crime. There were over 30 capital crimes in scripture, not just murder, right? But working on the Sabbath, disrespecting your parents and adultery were all capital crimes. So this woman is drug out, humiliated. And Jesus looks at these men who have their stones ready to kill her. And he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone and the stones drop. The men walk away and there's Jesus and the woman there. And he, he looks at her and he says, where did they all go? And he says, go and send no more. And in that moment, you get the sense that the only one who had any right to throw a stone had absolutely no desire. That the closer we get to God, the less we should want to throw stones at other people. So I want to invite you tonight to see, maybe some of you are thinking about this issue for the first time to really say, you know, at the heart of our faith is this belief that mercy triumphs over judgment, that Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. And at the very heart of our faith is this question, is anybody beyond redemption? And if we believe that someone, even someone who has committed murder is beyond redemption, then we could rip out half the Bible. Moses killed a man, David raped Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah. Uh, David killed a man. Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist. He went door to door trying to kill Christians and persecute Christians. And yet he gets floored by the mercy and the grace of God and goes on to write half the New Testament. So the whole Bible would be a whole lot shorter without grace. And that is why we're talking about faith and the death penalty. But I also want to say this. And as as I get to introduce you to two of my friends tonight, I want to say that this is not just a head thing, because I think sometimes our hearts have to change before our head and our theology, right? Our hearts have to be moved. And one of the most effective ways that we can have a better conversation about issues like the death penalty is to listen to the people who have been directly impacted by this issue. And you know, many people say, but what about the victims? Don't we want justice for the victims? And so the first person I want you to hear from tonight uh, is Suzanne Bossler, who is a survivor of violence. And she's gonna tell you about that, but she's also gonna tell you about how she's used that pain, not to create more pain in the world, but to try to heal it. So Suzanne, Thank you so much. I love you. We've done so many things like this, but every time you share, it moves me in the deepest parts of my soul. So thank you for being
5: here, sister. Thank you so much for the invitation to be a part of you and my dear friend over there, Derek and Brandy. Um, I just wanted to show you what t-shirt I'm wearing today. Thou shalt not kill. And it's our t-shirt in Florida for Floridians for alternatives to the death penalty. So I thought it would be appropriate for today and because I usually wear my Journey of Hope shirt. But um, I really thank you a lot because I I love – I could listen to you all day, (laughs) Shane, because you have your words bring out so many things that help me go over things that I need to, you know, um, help myself continue my work. And um, I'm going to start off by saying how blessed I am to – be a part of these webinars and journey of hopes and things with being able to share with people, but also I don't just share, I also still learn from you all too. So I thank you all for that. Um, I'm gonna tell a few minutes of my uh, interesting story that got me to be here with everybody um, because it's important to where my story is going. On December 22nd, 1986 in South Florida, my father, Reverend Bill Bossler, that was a, a Reverend of a church, uh, Miami First Church of the Brethren. And we were in a bad area, but my father was not, be- wa- afraid to be in that area. He wanted to go to that area so that he could help people. So we lived in the parsonage. Everybody, I don't know if everybody knows what a parsonage is, but I'm a PK, preacher's kid. <laughs> and we lived right next door to the church. So we always had people coming to us for whatever they needed you know, food, clothing, counseling, you name it, we gave it to them. So we always had somebody knocking on our our door. We didn't know if it was going to be a new person that needed help or one of our regulars. And this day, um, it was just me and my father in the house. And this man came to our door. And as soon as my dad opened the door, um, I heard him make strange noises. I came out and I saw a man stabbing my father. So I came towards them to help. By the time I got there, the man turned around and stabbed me. He, he turned around, um, I, I fell down, he turned around, and stabbed my father and he stabbed me again. And um, after that, he, um, when, when I um, was stabbed in the head the second time, I fell down on the floor and I pretended to be dead so that hopefully I could maybe save my dad's life. But it always doesn't work that way. So he basically had come there for money for drugs and, We didn't have a lot of money so he didn't get a lot from us but unfortunately my father was stabbed 24 times and his life was in other words he took his last breath in front of me which i watched him do i only got stabbed five times but i survived and today what i'm doing with you all today is um, a reason that i survived is um but i will tell you this is i have to really tell you the truth about Me being a PK and thinking that I I knew what forgiveness was all about and knew the definition of forgiveness. And when this happened, I had to kind of regroup on that (laughs) and really find out the real truth because um, I wasn't feeling forgiveness for this man that was caught a week to the day later. When he was caught, I didn't have to think about anymore of hopefully they're going to catch this man. I had to start thinking about, okay, um, once he was caught, they were, they told me my dad was dead. It was after that I had to think about more than my dad's life. I had to start thinking about my life. I had to start thinking about James Bernard Campbell that did its life. I had to start thinking about what forgiveness is and, and am I going to be able to do it? Um, I will be honest with you. The next 10 and a half years we had horrible 10 and a half years of trials in the justice system down here and um, many trials, uh, sentencing, resentencing, another resentencing, and it was 10 and a half years of hell that I had to go through. And what we had to do, me and my family, is we had to delay, delay our uh, healing process because I was seeing the pictures all the time. I was seeing the story all the time. I was going through everything that happened all the time and, your, your, your healing just doesn't start then. So it was an amazing experience because I got to meet Bill Pelkey, which helped uh, bring me into um, co-founding Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing. That To me, Bill saved my life <laughs> because right after this happened, I started saying to people when they would ask me, Suzanne, do you forgive him? And I would always say, yes, I forgive him. Yes, I forgive him. But I always wondered why, when I would go home, why I... I I still had hatred for this man and I really wanted to hurt him myself. And it was shocked to me because I never felt that way before. And so my spiritual growth really had to take a turn. Um, The first five and a half years that I went with Journey of Hope, uh, going around the world to share my story and say the words, I forgive, I forgive him, I forgive him. It was just words. It was just words from my mouth. Um, when I was once, once five and a half years into the trials, I, the, the jury wasn't in, and I was able to point to James Bernard Campbell, look him in the eye and say, James Bernard Campbell, I forgive you, whether you accept it or not, I forgive you. And it was at that moment that I really knew, I really knew what forgiveness was all about. Because all that time I'm thinking, if I forgive this man, is that going to be an excuse for what he did? If I forgive this man, um, well, I haven't heard him say I, I'm sorry. I haven't heard him say thank you for helping save my life. So I was, I was making all these excuses for not giving him because I thought if I gave him this, this forgiveness, I won't have, I won't have the time to think about my father. I won't have the time to be able to um, be a hundred percent into the forgiveness that I needed to be. So um, try to put it, I'll probably try to, you know, shorten it a little bit, but it was a really intense experience for me because um, what got me through the first five and a half years of saving his life, life, I did it for my father first. Hmm. But I also did it because I remembered my father and I, eight years before this happened, he and I were having a debate on the death penalty. I wanted to see where he was coming from and actually Shane Shane said all of the regular things about the money and the deterrence that my dad was seeing. But he also said at the end, Suzanne, let me just give you a simple example. He said, if anyone were ever to murder or kill me, I would still not want that person to get the death penalty. And so whew, that really burned into my brain because I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. OK, so I had to start thinking about, OK, if I help the government execute him, oh, my gosh, what would that make me? Because I, 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 I thought of James Burger Campbell, quote, unquote, as a murderer. And if I was going to help the government, I, I would consider myself a murderer, too. And it goes back to what Shane said about the mirror. It would be exactly the same thing. I would be doing exactly the same thing that he did to us. And I refused to do that. I refused to do that because it was the wrong thing to do. It wasn't right. It would not. It would take everything out of me that I, I had. And listen, I have so much. I have so much healing to do. That's one less thing that I need in my life. And I had to think also about James Burr Campbell. James Burr Campbell has a mother and father. James Burr Campbell has a family. And James Burr Campbell is a child of God. And if I was going to help the government kill him, I would be killing part of God. And I refuse to do so. So after after I 100% purely forgave him i call it because to me it's pure 100 percent. like he said not just from the mind and the heart of uh, the mind and the mouth but it came from my heart it came from my heart and let me tell you at that moment when i pointed to him and said i forgive you james it was a moment that the word freedom comes to me because i felt so free that I could just almost do anything, and that's when my spiritual energy and growth came out even a thousand percent. It was after that that it it, it helped me um, with more strength to help save James Bernard Campbell's life. Wow! So, with the, when when you say about eye for eye all the time, when we spoke a lot, that came out quite a bit. People saying when they they knew I was a PK. And it was very simple for me because I learned that one time I did. not I first, the first person who said that I didn't know what to answer, but I sure do now because it's so true. Um, He or she without sin cast the first tone. And let me tell you, I said to myself, if it was like that in this world, I, all of us would be blind. All of us would be blind. And I got a lot of things I need to do and a lot of lives to save with you guys. And I, I'm, On uh, June 13th, 1987, I called it my day of victory because I was able to help save James Burr Campbell's life. But he's in for four consecutive life sentences the rest of his life. So I'm going on to work with Derek and Abe and Shane and other people, uh, Brandy, to uh, abolish the death penalty starting hopefully in the United States, but worldwide. We go outside the United States to do this also. But so I always yeah. say towards the end is let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. But I always say, whoever's watching us and whoever will see this, that means you too. You are part mm. of the peace movement also. So thank you.
1: I, I know your your dad, and many others are smiling down on you and the work that you're doing to honor him and to honor um, those who, uh, who have suffered from injustice and from violence. And it's always a gift to, to be with you, even in these virtual weird ways, but you, you you're a bright light in the world. I want to, I wanna, but we're going to get to Derek in a second, but I want to ask you one, one question. Cause what, you know, as you said, as you were talking, I, I think of, so many other folks that have survived things that have survived survive violent crimes or their loved ones have been murdered and one of the things that they told me is that hatred can feel easier in the short term but it becomes harder in the long term and love love can actually feel harder you know in the short term uh, um but it's the only way we're going to survive in the long term and um one one woman who her, her um she had her mom was killed she said um i had to forgive the person who killed not so that they could sleep at nights but so that i could sleep at night because that that yeah. you, you know th- this kind of uh hatred and anger was was really ripping her apart and she was you know kind of reliving it over and over so i i wanted to ask you like just a little bit of like um what that looks you know, what, what real forgiveness looks like, because, you know, we have these cliches like forgive and forget, but what I hear you and so many people saying is no, you never forget. And that's part of the power of mercy and grace is that you're forgiving in light of something really, really terrible that is undef- indefensible. But what, you know, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about how you found the power to do that. And, um, and and why forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't care about justice or that, that the crime still, you know, you, he's still in jail, you know, he just wasn't executed, but.
5: Oh my gosh. I don't need to say anything. You said, you answered it all yourself actually, but, but you know what you're reminding me of. You're reminding me of another thing that I thought of about forgiveness is that if I forgave him hundred percent, that I thought that I would be taking away the right to cry and miss my father. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, before I forgave him, I was crying tears, but it, it wasn't just missing him. It was hateful tears and it was vengeance tears. It was mm. revenge tears and it was killing. Like you said, it was killing me, not him. And when after I forgave him, he, the, the tear that you see today is because I miss him and it's gentle, loving forgiveness tears. Mm. So forgiveness and faith went together on this, yes, because I think if I had the faith, I don't think I could have forgiven him 100% at all. So to me, they do go step in step for me at that time, because I mean, you know, I don't even know or can fathom if I hadn't grown up in that home, in that church, I don't even know where I would have been. I, I could have been way far away or just done the opposite. Um, and wanted to, you know, help kill him. But here's another thing that happened though, in, in, in that I just have to bring up is that my grandmother taught my dad about the death penalty. My dad taught me about the death penalty. And then when her son was murdered, she got up in front of the judge and said, uh, I'm against the death penalty judge, but do what you gotta do. So I was like, oh my goodness, boy, you learn that people can change either side, either way on these these topics. Because we, we, you know, and, and, um, branding, everybody knows that when we meet people, there's people that are against and for after their loved one is, 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 so it could just happen to anybody, but the faith and the forgiveness is I could not have survived without it. I could not have survived and gotten this far without it. And so if, let me tell you, I don't even know if I could have gone this far without forgiveness because, um, forgiveness is was just a word to me before because it was easy for me to forgive small things but when it came to a big thing i really had to you know think about it and pray yeah. about it and grow in it and let myself let it go the hate and anger because let me tell you it i i was so eroded inside of hate mm. that it was really destroying me. And I, I finally said, you know, I'm not going to be like him. I'm going to forgive him because it doesn't make it. And here's, I want to make sure if everybody knows it, just because I forgave him does not mean that I'm better than him. Mm. I'm mm. not better than him at all, at all, at all. I'm still equal. I just was able to forgive him for what he brought upon us. So yeah. I just want to make sure people know that I'm not I'm not better than him. I'm just, just as equal, but I was blessed enough to be able to forgive him.
1: Thank you. Did I answer any of your questions? So good. So everybody listening is Suzanne Bossler and she's a, um, a big part of death penalty action. And one of the co-founders of journey of hope, which journey of hope brings together folks that are, um, Murder victims' family members, and also folks that were wrongfully convicted, folks that have loved ones on death row that are facing execution. All to say, violence is the problem, not the solution. As Bill Pelkey said, uh, "We need uh, love and forgiveness for all humanity." He, he, we lost him this year, uh, but you're you're continuing to, to sing that song, Suzanne. So we're going we're going to turn to Derek Derek Jameson, uh, who we're all friends because we're in this movement together. And one of the things about the abolition movement is you get to meet some of the most amazing people um, on this planet. And uh, Derek Jameson was wrongfully convicted. I'm not going to share much of his story because he's going to share it all. But it's important to remember that for every nine people who have been executed, we've had one exoneration. Think about that, right? Like if every 10 planes that took off if one of them crashed, we'd be like, Whoa, like, this is, this is a problem. Right. But that's our track record. And that's only the people who have been able to prove their innocence. And we now have, you know, some 170 people, Derek will give us the exact stat, you know, over that, that some of them have spent 20, 30 years wrongfully convicted. Oh, it's 185 exoneries. Those are the people that have proved their innocence. And, um, Cumulatively, like 2,000 years of their life that has been taken from them. So there's no one that knows the the, the dark side of this death penalty uh, better than Derek Jamison, who was wrongfully convicted and has been all over the world speaking about it, been in all kinds of videos. But tonight is with us down in Florida on the Zoom machine. Welcome, my brother.
2: Hey. Thank you, Shane. I love y'all so much, man. Thank y'all for having me here, Suzanne. I love you, sweetie. I came, I miss you sis. But uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, and on uh, October October the 25th of 1985, I I was wrongfully wrongfully convicted and sent to die in Cincinnati, Ohio. In front of, in a courtroom, in front of Judge Thomas Ace Crush. He crushed my world, y'all. Uh, man, I remember that day like it was yesterday, man, you know. Man, I couldn't believe it, man. Here I was. I was 23 years old, and I was sent to die in Ohio's elected chair. I remember my first day arriving on Ohio's death row. They brought out the welcome party bed. They had all these guards, the gray shirts and the white shirts, waiting on me at the, at the door, the front door of the prison when the van pulled up. All these guards standing there waiting on me. And they uh, shut down the prison and put everybody in the day rooms and they marched me down this long corridor. And then when we got to death row, we stopped at death row it was the death house. And I remember walking in and I remember they turned the lights on and I remember the first thing I saw was this glass enclosure that had the electric chair in there and behind this glass enclosure was all Sparky. Uh, at the time, like 400 and some men, women and children had been executed in the state of Ohio. but so in the state of Ohio, we hadn't had an execution since 1963. But it was 1985 and I was sent to die. And I remember standing there, all these guards standing around me, they strip searched me, man, you know, and they sent all my belongings home to my mom. And I remember after they, they made me strip naked and I had all my clothes off. they sent all my clothes and all my, my belongings home. And I remember, we were walking up out of the out of the death house, and they had cleared the hallway for us to walk down the corridor. We went to death row. I remember arriving on death row, man. You could hear all this noise in the block. It was real noisy. You could hear rap music, country music, people singing, talking. The guards, the doors slamming, and everything. It was real noisy. But when the guards let me in there they said one of them said dead man walking i said i ain't dead yet you know i'm new to i'm new to the prison and this car it's like dead man walking and they got real quiet and all these all these all this noise coming up out of death row everybody was real quiet and i could hear them whispering it's the new guy it's the new guy it's Derek jameson you hear? here you hear?" here and the car said mr jameson going to cell 27 so cell 27 is up on the second floor. So these guards had to carry me. I'm I'm six 65 now. I'm 170 pounds, you know, big old, big young guy. They had to carry me all the way up to the second floor because I got shackles and handcuffs on But what scared me was when I was walking down the range, all these guys that's already been condemned to die. They was in their cell. They had their arms hanging out on the ranks. They was out trying to introduce themselves to me, how you doing and all that. went here and that and I was still in shock because I had just been sent to die, you know. And I had to walk all the way down to cell 27, man. They put me in that cell, and I remember when they cell slammed, man. They unhandcuffed me, and I sat on my bunk. I'm a big dude, now I'm in this little bitty cell the size of your bathroom. I'm talking about, it was smaller than your bathroom. It was a bunk and a little toilet and a mirror. That's all in there. You know, that's all I had in that cell. But like for 14 long years, I sat on Ohio death row without an execution. And then this was 1985. And in 1999, 14 years later, a young man by the name of Wilco Berry, he volunteered to die. Can you imagine that? This guy, he wasn't even from Ohio, he was from Texas. This young man was from Texas, named name was They didn't even call him by that name, they called him the volunteer. Well, I remember that morning. All that noise you used to hear on death row in the prison, it was real quiet that morning. There was so much media out there. I mean, it was media everywhere. I mean, lights, camera, action. It was media. And it was the first execution career to take place. And I remember all them guards bringing Barry, they were marching Barry into the death house. Man, it seemed like yesterday, they marched him in the death house Look, very little white guy, curly hair, looking like he was about 14 to 15 years old, Look little young dude. When he was about 30, very about 31, 32 years old, he was executed. he looked so young, penitentiary got a way of conserving people, making, you, you know, make you look like young, because you ain't doing nothing to eat three meals a day and sleeping. But this man, they probably, they marched him, it was about, seven, eight cars. And out of media, the cameras was everywhere. And I remember they marched Little Berry in the death house. I was on my bed job on death row. And you could hear a pin drop. It was so quiet. All of guys, all of us condemned to die. We had to watch them take Berry in the death house. And I remember marching in the death house. Little Berry. And they went ahead with execution calls. Barry was executed that day. And I remember when they was bringing his body out on the garden. And they had his body in the body bag. And the the paramedics that were taking his body to the hearse, you could see see his body moving in the bag, in the body bag, when they were pulling him, you know. But I I was was laying on my bed, curled up, man. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was crying like a baby, man. I was crying, it hurt so bad. I couldn't believe it was killing this young man, you know. Yeah, Even yeah. though Barry did, did, Barry did the cry, but I didn't want to see him die. And, you know, like we all thought on death row, we didn't want to see Barry, we didn't want to see Barry get executed, but the day of Barry execution, it was like a dark crowd came over the state of Ohio. They started killing my friends, one after another, out after another, you know. It was awful, man. But, um, I, can,
1: I can usually hug you at this point, man. I can usually wrap my arm around you because I know, I know you were affected by seeing all these people that they were your family. They were your friends. They began to execute. How many people did it end up that, that were executed while you were there?
2: Well, while I, was, while I was on death row, they executed 18 of my friends. And uh, the day I was leaving, October the 25th, the best day of my life, they were ex- preparing me to leave prison. They were preparing my best friend, uh, William Williams. Uh, they called him Lil' Flip. They were preparing him for execution the morning that I was leaving death row, a free man. They killed my best friend the same morning. I was walking off the death row, free man. look at that- my best friend. He said, right across from me. I could look right over in his cell and see, you know, a little bitty guy, about five foot tall. But they executed him the morning that I was walking off the death row. But the, that wasn't the worst day of my life. The worst day of my life was uh, 1999. Uh, I was. It was around Christmas time. It was 1997, around Christmas time. Uh, I was sitting on my bed, waiting, listening to Christmas music. You know, making the best out of bad situation. And I was sitting on my bed, and I was listening to Christmas music, and I was waiting on my vision. And I just happened to look up, and I see I uh, I see about seven, eight guards at my door. And the guards, it was white shirts and gray shirts, and the gray shirts were standing behind the white shirt. And one of the gray shirts, he was crying because he knew me. I knew something bad was ready to happen. I knew they had some bad news from me, but it was the worst news I ever heard in my life. They told yeah. me that my mom had died, that more and all I could do. I remember getting up out the floor. Because I I remember it hurt so bad, I just remember winding up on the floor. They broke all the security codes and opened my door and checked on me. Because I passed out, man, because it it hurted me so bad. They came to tell me that my mom had died that morning. And all I could do was picture my mom laying in that floor dead, man. I was waiting on the visit to see my mom. And they came to tell me that she had passed away that morning, mm. and that hurt so bad. Yeah. That was one of the worst days of my life. But
1: so I want, I want you, you. I mean, I, I think everybody listening, there's nobody that can hear your story and not be moved. That you, like, your mom never got to see you proved innocent. That when not, she died, you were still on death row. That you, you had how many execution dates did you have?
2: I had six days of execution out of six just twenty of years. Of out of 20 years on death row, I had six days of execution.
1: So you were almost executed. And then I want you to tell people how you came to be shown innocent because some people it was DNA, other people, it was, you know, there's all kinds of things. But for you, it was the prosecutors had full evidence that you were yeah. innocent. So tell, tell people how that happened that you were proved innocent and, and you know, where you are today.
2: Yeah, um, I got one of the worst cases in American history, the prosecutors and the homicide detectives would heal 35 pieces of evidence. You only need one piece of new evidence to get a new trial. These prosecutors and the homicide detectives would heal 35 pieces of evidence. And we in federal court, they point to figure one another I'm sitting here with the death penalty. And that was the only time I ever heard a judge stand up for me, Cause the judge cut their ass out in the courtroom. <laughs> it was so funny, man. I felt so good. The courtroom erupted. Man, I felt so good, man. It was oh. like the clouds opened up and the sun came in. It was one of the most beautiful feelings in the world. You know, oh. I, I just, I was crying and uh, uh, even the prosecutor, Mark my he he apologized to me that day, man. He yeah. told me he was sorry for what happened to you know.
1: But he and and uh, I mean I think it's important that even even though you know they they said that they were sorry that they can't give you back your mom. They can't give you back the the yeah. years that you spent on death row. You know they can't give you give you that back. And um, I love you, man. And I I know that you you. Um, your your passion is to end this thing, right? It almost took your life. It took way too many of your friends' lives. Uh, I'm I'm so grateful for you, man. I'm so grateful. You want to say anything else before we uh, we're gonna pass yeah, it to Brandy there?
2: It's, yeah, since uh, 1999 uh, in Ohio, we have had 56 executions. You know. 56 of my friends, and the last, the last execution we had in Ohio was one of my best friends too, uh, Robert Van Hook. You know, he had just come home from the military and uh, got into some trouble, and got into a bar fight, and killed the guy and got the death done. You know, but uh, he was one of my best friends. Bobby had never been in trouble before, and he was the last person to be executed in Ohio, and. One of my best friends that died uh, a few months ago, uh, his name was Romel Broom. He was the only person in, the, in, in America to be given lethal injection and survive. You know, they, they shot this man with lethal injection 20-something times. He had 20-something puncture wounds on his arms. Uh, you know, they couldn't find a bag. God didn't want him to die that day. But me and Romel arrived on Ohio Death Row the same day. You know, the exact same day we, we arrived on Ohio Death Row. We became close friends, you know. Yeah, did 30-some years on Death Row before he died from COVID last month. You know? Yeah, he
1: just, he just died. He had his
2: last month. He died from COVID-19. So.
1: Thank you, brother. Thank you You're for welcome. sharing. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, Derek, I think of there's one of the, um, the early bishops of the church. Cyprian was his name. And he said, when an individual kills another individual, we call it evil. But why do we sanctify it when the state kills people? in mass, that somehow we say it's okay for the state to kill, but it's wrong for an individual to kill. And what you're hearing us say tonight, Derek and Suzanne and all of us, is that it is wrong to kill. No matter whether it's a a criminal or a governor or a president, it is wrong to kill, that we can do better than this, y'all. We can do better than this. So I'm going to pass it to Brandy, who's sitting there with you, Derek, um, Brandy Slaughter is the deputy uh director of death penalty action. She's gonna give us some some uh action steps. Call us to action, sister, and tell us a little bit yeah. about death penalty action here, and then yeah, we're gonna absolutely. put from Stu. Go ahead, Brandy.
0: Absolutely. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Come I am on. just thrilled to be here this evening. Uh, I am Randy Slaughter. I'm also a reverend, so I'm glad to be with the body of believers, and I'm um, and with Death Penalty Action. And I have to say, um, I think it's my job to do the altar call, and the altar today is not necessarily calling you to Christ, calling you, maybe calling you to repentance. I don't, I don't know where you are as it relates to the death penalty, but it is certainly to call you to action. And every time I hear my brother, my sister. Um, talk about the power of forgiveness, um, their ability to tap into the spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, to um, continue to love and, and continue to show mercy and compassion. It just moves me and inspires me all the more. So um, Death Penalty Action, we've existed since 2017, and we are doing a lot of work, particularly around abolishing the federal death penalty. And Uh, We're also engaged in several um, states. You know, there's a lot of opportunity and possibility. I just think there is a pregnant moment, a moment where lots of folks' public opinion is that we don't agree with state sanctioned killing. We don't agree with it. We don't want them killing in our names. We don't want our tax dollars going towards it. Let's just end this foolishness. And so you out there tonight um, can join with us. Um, I'm gonna share my screen if at all possible, hopefully. Yes. Now, if you wanna know more about what you can do um, to further this work, uh, something that was said here today just inspires you to move and and do something, you can go to our website, deathpenaltyaction.org. And then here's this tab where it says take action. Um, There are campaigns, there are execution petitions, there's active legislation. um, But here on our main page, we want you to send a letter. We want you to reach out um, to your members of Congress. Uh, We have a sense that, um, you know, our president does not um, support the death penalty. Uh, We don't imagine that executions will be scheduled under this administration, but we have to end this once and for all. And the way to do that is to pass legislation. And so we've partnered with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Um, I'm going to end my comments with just a video from her. Um, But if you feel as inspired as I do, if you feel that hearing these stories, that you have the need to right or wrong, um, I want you to join with us and take action. So just a second here, um, a little video, and then back to you, um, Brother Shane.
6: The death penalty is cruel, unjust, and has no place in any society. Last year, in the midst of a deadly pandemic that took countless lives, the Trump administration resumed federal executions for the first time in 17 years. What followed was an unprecedented state-sanctioned killing spree, unlike anything we'd ever seen in this country. In only seven months, the Trump administration executed 13 people. That's more than the total number executed over the previous six decades a horrible and ruthless legacy to leave. In Trump, we saw the worst example of what a change in power could bring, which is why it is essential that Congress legislate to fully end the death penalty, codify its abolishment into law, and prevent a future president from reinstating it down the line. State-sanctioned murder is not justice, and the death penalty goes against everything we claim to stand for as a nation. And at a time when more states across the country have outlawed the death penalty than ever before, more Americans oppose the death penalty, and over 70% of nations across the globe have abolished it. We must follow suit and do what's right. Death penalty action is called on members of Congress to pass my Federal Death Penalty Prohibition Act of 2021 to abolish the federal and military death penalty once and for all. It's what the people want. It's what the nation needs. And it's what we must do.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Brandy. So keep joining a death penalty action. And y'all, this is the thing. We're going to end this thing. We're going to end this thing. And one of the questions is, what role will Christians play in the abolition of the death penalty? I believe a generation from now, we're going to look back at the death penalty like we look back at slavery. And we're going to say that was evil and wrong. And how did we use the Bible to defend it? And so this is our time, y'all. It doesn't take courage to say slavery is wrong after we've ended it. It took, it took courage to say slavery is wrong when it was the status quo. And this is a time for us to have courage on the death penalty. The, st- the, everything, the arc of the universe is bending towards justice and executions are dropping almost every year. New death sentences are the lowest they've been in decades. Uh, for the, one of the first times, like Brandy said, a majority of the public want an end to the death penalty. And here's the good news, too. 80% of millennial Christians born after 1980, 80% want to see the end of the death penalty. We got this, y'all. We got this. So join Death Penalty Action. Stu going to bring us a song. Derek, thank you, my brother. Suzanne, thank you, my sister. We're going to have uh sing us out, and I'm going to just give you one uh heads up at the tail end but stu sing us out my brother
3: thank you shane thanks for all those amazing stories it's uh, unbelievable and um yeah just affirming that i'm standing with you all and uh um this song is a song that I actually wrote yesterday with my friend Leslie Jordan it's actually a blessed other pure in heart song for they just uh <laughs> blessed other pure in heart for they shall see God song now um but in the, the story of the Garden of Eden, we hear we see that Adam and Eve, um, they ate of the fruit. And then the next thing we see is that they ha- are experiencing shame and regret and, and guilt, and they run and hide. And so God comes in the garden and says, where are you? And uh, so this is a song that is really about mercy, and it's kind of saying that God is always coming to find us when we hide Uh, it's called No Need to Hide
4: in the shadows my heart divided uncertain and unclean in the waiting i am reminded your voice still calls for me there is no need to hide you are a god who comes to find, there is no need to hide, you are a God who comes to find me. your presence the chaos gets quiet you lift this burden from me in your mercy your blessing and kindness your face is all I see there is no need to hide for you are a god who comes to find there is no need to hide you are a god who comes to find find me find me There is no need to hide For you are a God who comes to find There is no need to hide You are a God who comes to find me.
1: Wow. Thank you, my brother. And that is a fresh song just yesterday, written yesterday. Come on. What a great way to to close off the night. Thank y'all for joining us. I'm especially thankful for uh, Derek Jameson and Suzanne Bossler for sharing their stories and their heart and their faith with us and for Brandy and Abe at Death Penalty Action. Um, Listen, y'all, we we do this for free uh, because we want you to be able to, we don't ever want money to be an obstacle to being able to, Uh, lean into conversations like this. But if you do want to give, we're going to give everybody that shared tonight, you know, a small little gift of thanks. So if you go to redletterchristians.org and you donate there, it allows us to do more stuff like this and to support the people who are really moving our hearts. So give what you can at redletterchristians.org. But mostly, thank you for being here with us tonight. Thank you for all my friends who have shared I'm going to send this out, uh, if I can do this right. Um, remember one of the people who is on death row, who's continuing to fight for his life, uh, Abu Ali in Tennessee on death row. Uh, he's an incredible singer, and he sings Amazing Grace. And uh, so I, I, we're going to end the recording in just a second, but but uh, I'm going to try to send you out with our brother Abu Ali here. Thank you all for joining the conversation amazing here tonight.
4: Grace, Abu Ali. Ah amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved the which like me
1: Blessings, y'all.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this special Faith Forum conversation. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but bringing heaven to earth while we live. Thank you for listening. For more information, check out our website, www.redletterchristians.org, and follow us on social media.